Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks, Steve. And uh, like Steve said, if you are a first-time guest with us this morning, glad you're able to be with us. We hope that you get a chance to uh, check out our uh, Welcome Center, get that free gift that Steve mentioned. And uh, welcome to you guys. Welcome to everyone to the, to the 10 o'clock service here at Grace Church. So like Steve said, what we're doing today is we're actually closing a series down uh, that we've been calling God Connect. And uh, if it's your first time or you missed the past few weeks, uh, let me just kind of kind of catch you up to speed. Basically, what we've been doing in the series is we've been uh, quite simply just talking about prayer. That's what this whole series has been about, about around the topic of prayer, which of course is not real surprising, right? Here we are, we're a church, we're talking about prayer. Those things tend to go together a lot, and so it's not real surprising um, that we're doing this series on prayer. But I would say that I think that, that the way that we've been talking about prayer is a little bit different. And, and so kind of the, the main heartbeat or the main aim of this series has been kind of based off of a need that we've seen. And we said that in our culture, as it relates to prayer, one of the things that we've noticed, at least I've noticed in my own experience, and I know many of you have noticed as well, is that prayer is one of those things um, that is often advised, um, but it's seldom explained. And, uh, and here's what I mean by that. Um, my guess is that this might be some of your experience too, especially if you're a person who grew up with a religious background. And I know not everyone grew up with that background, but for many of us, we kind of grew up with a religious background, regardless of what religion uh, you may have come from. Uh, what, what, what I'm, my guess is that you found the same thing I have, is that prayer is one of those things that's been often advised. And so uh, as long as I can remember, I've been told I need to pray, right? You need to pray. Uh, you're going through a hard time, you need to pray. You're going through a good time, you need to pray. You need to pray more often. You're probably not praying enough, you know? And prayer's been one of those things, as long as I can remember, that has been advised. It's been looked favorably upon. And so pray, be, you know, be a prayerful person. And so, uh, and so it's one of those things that's often advised, but what I found in my own experience is that it's seldom explained. That uh, seldomly has someone sat, sat down and explained to me um, this is what prayer is, and this is the difference that it makes, and um, this is the right way and the wrong way to do it. And so, and so really what we want to do in this series then is we, we said that really kind of our ambition is not so much to give you a guilt trip and to tell you that you're not praying enough and you need to pray more and you need to discipline yourself harder. And that's really not kind of the ambition of our series, though I do hope that one of the results of this series is that we do pray more often. Um, however, the whole heartbeat of this series is really to kind of take a step back and sort of look at prayer almost like an investigation. We're kind of asking the big questions about prayer. So questions like, um, what is prayer? Like, what is it? Every major religion does it. So what exactly uh, is prayer, and how are we to understand it? But asking questions like, how do I know I'm doing it right? Is there a wrong way to do it? And uh, asking big questions like, what difference does it make? And so for the past few weeks, what we've been doing is each week, we've been kind of looking at a different question um, as, it, as, it, uh, as it relates to the topic of prayer in kind of an investigation type of way. So I'd encourage you, like I said, if it is your first time here, if you missed the past few weeks, I would really strongly encourage you to grab those sermons and to listen to those because it would really help you understand a little bit more of what we're talking about today. And so you can do that a couple of ways. If you go to our website, um, you can either download on our podcast the audio. You can listen to that on your drive to work. It's all free. And uh, we hope you can enjoy that. The other thing you can do is you can download and watch those uh, for free on our website too, which of course, if you want to see me in person, I understand that. I am pleasing to the eye, and so that's fine too. And so you can watch those sermons, you can listen to those sermons, however, but I would encourage you to catch up um, if you've been missing the, the past few weeks in this series. This week, uh, what I want to do as we kind of wrap it up though, is I want to really deal with one really, really sticky issue as it relates to prayer. And I think that this is probably for many of us, um, in fact, I'd say most of us may be a sticking point as it relates to the topic of prayer. I know it is for me. And uh, there's a lot of questions, a lot of confusion on this point. And this is, this is really the question I want to deal with is, um, does prayer make a difference? Does it actually change anything? 
right? And I think that that is a prayer, that is a, that is a question about prayer that many of us, we might not say it out loud, but I think it's a question that we actually have. What difference does it make? Does it actually change anything, right? And this question can be based off of a number of core reasons. For some of us, uh, we might think, well, if God already knows everything, like if God knows the end, if God knows what I need before I even ask him, then like what is the significance and the purpose of prayer? What is it, does it actually really make any difference at all? And, uh, and I think that that is really, like I said, it's a sticking point for many of us. And, and the reason I think that this is so important, that we understand um, really some of the insights into this question is because, because we don't understand uh, the difference that prayer makes, oftentimes it will prohibit us from praying. We just won't do it because we don't necessarily believe, some of us don't necessarily believe or understand that it makes any difference at all. I was actually thinking about this this week, and I was reading, um, there's a renowned atheist, his name is Daniel Dennett, and Daniel Dennett said this, I, I thought this was really insightful. Um, now, granted, he's an atheist, and um, so he doesn't have a very high view of prayer, and, uh, and like many of you, you might actually agree with this. Some of you might be in that position where you're investigating God, or you might be in a position where you're not sure what you believe yet, and so you might agree with him, but this is what he says. I thought this was insightful. Uh, Daniel Dennett said, surely it does the world no harm if those who can honestly do so pray for me. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, if someone comes up to me, and remember, he's an atheist. He says, if someone comes up to me and says, I'm praying for you, he's like, surely that can do no harm, right? If they're a well-intentioned person, that can't harm anything. But look what he says next. He says, no, I'm not at all sure about that. For one thing, if they really wanted to do something useful, they could devote their prayer time and energy to some pressing project that they could actually do something about. So what's he saying here? Well, he's revealing something that I think um, that maybe some of us believe about prayer, and that's this, that if it was between working and praying, that working is probably the better use of my time and my energy and my effort. Right? What Daniel Dennett is saying is, if you come up to me and say you're going to pray for me, I would rather you take that prayer time and invest it in something that's actually going to make a difference. Right? Go, go donate your time to a charity. Go involve yourself in some project that's actually going to cause um, some change in a very real way. But don't pray. And what Daniel Dennett, remember he's an atheist, he's got a very low view of prayer. But here's what I, what, why this struck me so much. It struck me because, well, I think for those of us who follow Jesus, and like I said, I, I know not everyone in the room follows Jesus, but for those of us who do, myself included, I feel like sometimes, even though we might disagree with this, when we read this quote, we might disagree with this in theory, in practice, we actually live like that's true. And, and I'll be the first one to admit it, that if I, if I was to look at my prayer life, I would just be honest with you guys, I would tell you this, that if it, would, if it comes down to work and prayer, that if that's my, my choice, I almost always, always, always choose to first work. So if I'm, an example, if I'm facing a relational conflict, if I'm in the middle of a, of a trying situation, if I'm facing a hardship of some type, if there's some situation that I'm going through, um, I will exhaust all of my resources in and of myself to try to work towards some sense of resolution. I'll just work and work and work and work and work. If there's a relational conflict, I'll just do everything in my power to try to change that relational situation. If there's a, a trying situation or a hardship, I will go through everything that I can. I'll exhaust every effort on my own part to try to accomplish some resolve uh, by my own means. And then, and then, and then, if um, I'm finally out of options, and I'm out of work, and there's nothing left for me to do, then I'll go to prayer. And I think that for many of us who follow Jesus, that's true. 
um, that the way we function is that we actually believe that prayer doesn't really affect much, that it, it's a better use of my time, it's a better use of my energy, it's a better use of my persistence if I work rather than prayer, pray. And then if I've exhausted all of those resources, then maybe I'll pray. It's the only thing left to do. There's nothing I can do but pray. I call it the Bon Jovi theology, right? Living on a prayer. He's like, Tommy worked on the docks, Union's been on strike, he's down on his luck. It's tough. So tough. And then, you know, the whole thing, and what is he saying? Sandra, situation is so terrible, the only thing they can do is live on a prayer, right? Bon Jovi theology. And, uh, and I think a lot of us live that. That's actually not a real thing. I just made that up right now. But, uh, but, it's, uh, but it's something I think that we all adhere to in some way or another for those of us who follow Christ. Well, here's the thing that strikes me. Um, it strikes me that when you look at Jesus, when you look at the, the, the life of Jesus, um, what is striking to me is the unbelievable dependence that Jesus has on prayer. Now just think about this for a minute. This has been messing me up this week. Just think about this for a second. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and I know not a, some of you have a hard time with that, but the Bible says Jesus was the Son of God, came to this earth with a mission to seek and to save that which is lost, to establish a kingdom on this earth. Right? That's what Jesus came to do. The Bible teaches us that. Jesus' time on this earth relative to the time span of all humanity was an incredibly brief window of time. He was here for 33 years. That's all the longer he was here. Most of it, 30 of those years, he spent in relative ambiguity. We don't really know much about Jesus' childhood years, his adolescent years. He lived in relative obscurity. And for the two and a half or three years that Jesus was in ministry, it was in that time that he affected all of the change um, that we see today, right? He started the church. He started this, this movement. He started this mission. Now, now, that's a very, very brief period of time. Now, I would think, okay, that if I was Jesus and I had that very slim margin of time, that I would not waste one moment, that I would do everything in my power to accomplish everything that I could to see that mission come to fruition, right? But here's the crazy thing that you see with Jesus. You see that he spent just as much time praying as he did working, that Jesus displayed and exemplified a reliance on prayer that was absolutely, for us, alien, unearthly. Let me just show you one passage that reflects this uh, very well for us. In Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, this is what it says. It says, um, yet the news about Jesus spread all the more, so the crowds of people came um, to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. So in other words, Jesus was busy. He was working. He was doing the ministry. He was preaching, teaching, healing. All of this was happening. He was doing that, but then look at this next verse. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I'll tell you, it's crazy. If you're looking for a little homework assignment, I encourage you to do this. Go through the Gospel of Luke and just circle or underline every time you see Jesus praying. And you're going to be shocked at the amount of time that Jesus Christ spent in prayer. It's ridiculous. Jesus, the Bible tells us, prayed all night before he chose his disciples. The Bible tells us that Jesus would oftentimes go away to a lonely place, to a place where no one was, and in a solitary place would pray to God over and over again. The Bible tells us before he went to the cross, he prayed all night. And just the reliance that Jesus had on prayer. And here, here's all I'm saying with that, okay? Is that if Jesus Christ, if Jesus exemplified such a deep dependence and reliance on prayer, Jesus himself did, in our lives, for those of us who follow Jesus, if our prayer lives don't look remotely like the type of dependence that he exemplified in Scripture, then I would venture to say that there must be something that we are misunderstanding about prayer. There must have been something he knew that we don't know about prayer. 
there must have been some effect that he had in mind that maybe you and I miss. And so it's because of that that today what I want to do is I want to talk about three things that prayer changes, three things that prayer affects. And we're going to see it from Jesus. In the prayer life of Jesus, we're going to see this. Three things that prayer affects. And I'll just tell them to you right at the beginning, and then we'll go through each one of them. Okay, so here they are. The effects of prayer. Okay, prayer affects the inner world, prayer affects the outer world, and prayer affects the unseen world. Those are the three things I want to talk about. Prayer affects the inner world, prayer affects the outer world, and prayer affects the unseen world. And I believe all three of those are working together at any time when we pray. So let me just start at the top, okay? So prayer affects the inner world. What am I talking about when I say that prayer affects the inner world? Well, here's what I mean by that. When I'm talking about the inner world, I'm talking about our attitudes, our motivations, our character, the, the inner parts of us. In other words, I'll put it this way. Prayer changes me. Prayer changes me. You want to know what prayer changes? You want to know what prayer affects? I could just tell you first and foremost that prayer affects me. It affects you. It affects the inner world of our attitudes, our character, of our, of our uh, perspective on things. I think one of the passages that we really see this exemplified for us very strongly in Jesus' life is probably in Matthew chapter 26. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab them with me and turn to Matthew chapter 26 there. And uh, Matthew chapter 26, by the way, you're going to find it on, uh, on page 696 in those black Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's totally fine. We have some for you. And you can get to Matthew 26 on page 696. And as you're flipping there, I'll just tell you what the scenario is. Some of you are aware of this. But basically, Matthew 26 is the night before Jesus is crucified. So just imagine, this has got to be the most agonizing period in Jesus' life. He's looking down the barrel at um, being betrayed. He's looking down the barrel at persecution, at uh, being beaten, and ultimately in the horrific death of being crucified on a cross. He's looking forward to all of these things. And the Bible tells us that he is in agony as a result of like any of us would be. He's in agony. And so the Bible tells us that he spends the evening before he faces the cross in prayer. And I'll tell you, I'm so thankful that the Bible doesn't just tell us that Jesus prayed, but the Bible also tells us what he prayed. And I want you to notice the content of what Jesus prays here. Okay, So uh, Matthew chapter 26, we'll start off in verse 39. So it says, Jesus went a little further from his disciples and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then the Bible says in, in the next couple of verses that Jesus goes to find his disciples. He finds them sleeping. He wakes them up. He's like, guys, keep praying. And then he goes back. Look at verse 42. Again, for the second time, Jesus went away and he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. And then Jesus goes back to his disciples and they're asleep again. He wakes them up. Then he goes back to prayer again. And then in verse 44, so leaving his disciples, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying these same words again. Now, once again, I love that the Bible tells us what Jesus prayed because here's what he prayed. Looking down the barrel at the cross, knowing that that was happening, he said, God, I don't want to do this. I, I, I pray that you would change my circumstance if there's any other way if I don't, he, call, he says, I don't, I don't want to drink this cup, which means I don't want to go through this. He says, so God, please change my circumstance. But then he says something so awesome. He says, but God, if it's your will, if it's what you want, 
then let that be done, then let that be done. And what Jesus shows us here, I love this so much, he shows us an incredible pattern, I believe, of something that you and I should also pray, and that's this. God, change my circumstance or change me. Change my circumstance or change me. Change me. I'm just, I'm just telling you, I dare you to pray this prayer. I just dare you to. Whenever you're facing a situation, a trying, a hard situation that you, uh, that you can't think of, uh, of a good way out of it or you can't think of, of a way to endure it, just simply pray this prayer. God, change my circumstance. You know my heart. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you. I don't wanna do this. I don't wanna be experiencing this right now. Change my circumstance or God, change me. Change me. And I'm telling you, when we pray that way, we are tapping into a power that Jesus Christ himself understood. God, change me. If, 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 if this circumstance is what you have for me, then I pray you would adapt me to your will. Change my heart that I might see things the way that you do. See, I think for some of us, um, we tend, when we pray, for many of us, we tend to pray simply uh, with circumstances, right? So it's, God, change my circumstances. God, I, I don't like my job. Give me a different job. Or God, I don't have a job. Help me find a job. God, I don't like my house. Help me find another house. Or God, I don't. My, there's a relational conflict. I pray you change the other person. Change my spouse. Change my coworker. Dear God, change my in-laws. Right? And we we pray these things, and it's all about change out the things out here. Change the things out here. But I think one of the greatest things you can pray is God. I'll be honest with you. I want my circumstances to change. But you and I both know this about prayer that God is not always interested in changing our circumstances. In fact, the very thing that you might be begging God to take away from you might be his primary means of accomplishing his will in your life. God uses trying situations to develop in us things like character, things like godliness, Christ-like attitudes, the fruit of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all of those things that God is trying to accomplish in you and God is trying to accomplish me. They are not external things at all. They are all internal things. They're all the fruit of the inner life. And so one of the primary reasons that God wants us to pray is because he knows that it affects things inside of me. When I go to God and I pray to God, when I kneel first, when that becomes my first response to go to God, that is an interruption to personal ambition. And it is a submission to the will of God saying, God, not my will, I'm relenting my desires to you. It's not that I'm lying to you. These are my desires. Jesus even said that. God, I don't want to do this. He's honest. But you're going to have to change me. If this is what you want from me, you're going to have to change me. And we see Jesus come back to the Father three times. God, please, please take this from me. But if, it's not, if this is your will, then let it be done. Let it be done. And, and, and it's because of that, I believe, that Jesus understood that one of the primary effects of prayer is that first and foremost, prayer changes the inner life. God has things he wants to do in us. Uh, Oswald Chambers said it really well. I mean, you guys may have heard of Oswald Chambers. He wrote a really cool devotional book. Uh, but this is what he said. I think he's put it well. He said, to say that prayer changes things is not as close to the truth as saying prayer changes me, and then I change things. God has established things so that prayer, on the basis of redemption, changes the way a person looks at things. Prayer is not a matter of changing things externally, but one of working miracles in a person's inner nature. And what's he saying there? He's saying exactly what Jesus knew here. That prayer has the ability to change my heart, that it changes the inner world. And that when I come to God in prayer, one of the primary sources of power of prayer is that it affects real change inside of me. So first and foremost, what are the effects of prayer? Jesus understood it. 
Uh, prayer changes the inner world. However, I think that if we stopped there, we would be shortchanging ourselves. If we just said that was it, that's it. You pray, God will change your heart. That's all that prayer is good for. Um, I think that we would be uh, that we would be sh- that we'd be stopping very short of the far outreaching effects of prayer. So here's the second one: prayer changes the inner world. But another thing we know is this: that prayer changes the outer world too. Prayer changes. What do I mean when I say prayer changes the outer world? Here's what I mean: prayer changes stuff. That's what I mean. Like it doesn't just change me; it changes things. Prayer changes history is what I mean to say. You know, um, we just have to Oswald Chambers quote there a minute ago, and one of the things that Oswald Chambers said is he said that it's, he goes, it's not as close to the truth to say that prayer changes things externally. Now, here's the thing about Oswald Chambers, all right? He is a much smarter man than I am, much smarter. Uh, he has been used by God in powerful ways. He's not as attractive as I am. But outside of that, he's, got, he's better than me in every other way. And so, and so it's, 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 I can't really say this without being, you know, without realizing that he's been used by God in powerful ways. But I have to say on that point, I kind of disagree with him. Because it is true. I do agree with him that one of the ways that God utilizes prayer is he uses it to change the inner world. I believe that, and I agree with that. But I think that if we simply stop there and we didn't say that prayer had the ability to change things externally, that uh, that would be a hard thing to reconcile with what you see in Scripture. Man, there are too many passages in the Bible where you see God's people pray, and as a result of them praying, stuff changes. Like, not just like in their heart, but like for real. Like in the time-space continuum, like empirically, things change. A few weeks ago, we looked at Elijah. Elijah prayed, God, would you send down fire from heaven? And God sent down fire from heaven. That's not an internal thing. That's an external, it happened. Like people saw it. People had their hair singed. That's, that's a real change in the real universe, right? Um, Jesus, the Bible says he went to Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. And Jesus went in front of the tomb and he prayed. And as a result of Jesus' prayers, Lazarus got up from the grave. I mean, that's not an internal change, man. That's like a real thing that happened as a result of these prayers. You guys might remember in the book of Acts, Peter was in prison, and the disciples all got together and had a prayer meeting. And as a result of their prayer meeting, the Bible says, a really weird passage, that an angel came and broke Peter out of prison. Peter thought he was having a dream. He's like, this is weird. The angel broke him out of prison, and the Bible says that he came and knocked on the door of where the prayer meeting was. Now, that's not an internal change, man. That is an external change that occurred. And I think that if we say that the effects of prayer are simply, inter- are simply on the inner world, we are missing the fact that throughout the Bible, man, that's not true. The effects of prayer are seen all throughout, that they affect the external world. They change history. Prayer changes history. And uh, I'll just be honest, and we see this in Christ, of course, we see this. Let me just give you an example. There's a lot I can take you to, but let me give you one passage where I think it helps us understand this more clearly, where Jesus um, shows us what he believes about prayer. So Matthew chapter 9, uh, if you, uh, you want to flip there, you can. It's a few pages back, or you could just follow me on the screen if you'd like as well. But Matthew chapter 9, this passage, I remember when I first read it, it was a little confusing to me because it just, it was shocking. I just want you to notice this. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. All right, so let's just stop there for a minute. Here's what he's saying. Jesus was working hard, man. He was out there doing his ministry, healing people, preaching, teaching. He was, he was, uh, he was just strong in his work ethic. 
Right? He was working very hard, but then look at this next part. Uh, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the Bible says as Jesus is doing all this work, he looked out at the crowds and he was moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, he's like, man, the need is so great that there are so many needs here. That's what Jesus said. But then look at this, this next part. It says, then, then he turned to his disciples, seeing that there was a strong need. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus is like, there's so much need, but there's not enough workers. There's not enough people to do the work. And then he said this, which surprised me. He said, therefore, pray earnestly at the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers for the harvest. Now, this was surprising to me because I did not expect Jesus to say that. Here's what I would expect Jesus to say. I would expect Jesus to be like, man, the need is huge. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And then he would look at his disciples, the 12 guys he's been training, and he would say, now you guys get to work. Why are you standing around? Go help. That's not what he says. He says, therefore, you better get to work praying. You better pray. Because if anything's going to change, then we have to ask God to raise up more workers. See, here, this to me shows me that Jesus understood something about prayer. He understood that prayer not only changed the inner world, but it also had a, a way of changing the outer world, that prayer changed things. He's like, there's a problem. We need to fix it. We better pray. Because prayer has the ability to change things. Let me show you one other place where this takes place. All throughout the Bible, like I said, it is... Um, it happens too frequently to be a coincidence where you see in the Bible that there is a group of people, a group of people who, who know God and follow God, who humble themselves, who cry out to God, who repent of their sin, and as a result, history changes. I mean, I'm just telling you, the frequency in which that happens throughout the Bible is far too often to be coincidence. One of the places that we see it real clearly is in the book of Judges. Let me just show this to you real quick because in this passage, we see it in a very clear way. So here's Judges chapter 3, okay? It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so the Israelites, they were God's people. They were supposed to follow God, but they decided to rebel against God. And the Bible says, because they rebelled against God, they started to suffer as a nation. God gave them over to their wickedness, and as a result of that, they began to suffer. And then, in verse 9, it says, But when they cried out to the Lord, when they prayed to God, then he raised up a, a deliverer for them. And you see, see what's happening here? Man, this is affecting real change. God's people humble themselves. They turn from their wickedness, and they cry out to God, and God changes things. And the, and the Bible says that the nation, things are going fine then. But then look, I think this is so funny. Just a couple verses later. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the world. That didn't take long. Right? Two verses. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, the Bible says as a result of that, that things changed. The nation was in hardship and persecution and suffering. And so then in verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliver. He answered them. God changed their circumstances. He changed history. Then you go to Judges chapter 4, the very, very next chapter. Again, you see the pattern here, by the way? This sounds a lot like my life, right? Again, again, the Israelites did evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. And again, God gave them over to their sin. And then they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. We see the same thing in Judges chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God gave them over to their sin. And then verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of, of Midian, he sent them a prophet. And what I'm saying is, 
You see it clearly here in the book of Judges, but it's all over the New, Old and New Testament, that every time, every time, God's people humble themselves, repent of sin and cry out to God, things change. Things change. Not just internally, externally. Things change. And that's not only true in the Bible. When you look at the time from the New Testament to modern day, all throughout church history, every, and I mean every, major move of God can be traced back to a group of people who have humbled themselves, confessed their sins to God, and asked God to deliver them every time. And I'm just saying this, that, that prayer does much more than just change me. Prayer also changes things, changes history. It has the ability to do that. I, I wish I had words enough to articulate for you how important this is, and I don't. So I have to rely on smarter people than me to help me. So let me give you three quotes from guys that are smarter than I am, all right, on this particular note. So a guy named Harold Linzel, he's a scholar, way smarter than me, uh, not as attractive. This is what he said, humble prayer is God's ordained means of accomplishing his will in the world, right? He's saying, God's ordained means in which he chooses to accomplish his will is through the prayers of his people. It's the way God does things. Here's another quote, kind of the same idea. John MacArthur, uh, he's a pastor and a theologian. He said, although God has ordained the ends, he has also ordained the means. And the end is fixed. And he uses the means to reach his end. And one of the means he uses to achieve his ends is our prayers. That's why the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He's saying the same thing. And then Philip Yancey, an author, he said, prayer is a designated instrument of God's power, as real and as natural as any other power that God may use. What are these guys saying? Here's what they're saying. They are saying that one of God's primary means by which he accomplishes his purposes on this earth is through the prayers of his people. In the book of James, it says that you have not because you ask not. And that means this, that there are victories in your life that there are victories in our church that we are not experiencing because we are not asking. God says there's stuff that I will change when you ask me for it. I will change not only the inside, which of course God is in the business of doing, but I'll change the outside too. I have the ability to transform your circumstances. Prayer changes not only me, but prayer changes stuff. Prayer changes things. It's the inner world. It's the outer world. And then Here's the last one. And this one, I just got to be honest. If you're a person that's here and you're investigating Jesus, if you're not a Christian, I'm just going to give you a weird alert. This is a little weird. Right? This one's kind of strange. But uh, it's, it's something that's in the Bible. And, uh, and so I understand that for some of you, if you're investigating Christ, maybe one of the things you have against Christianity or against religion in general is you're like, man, it just seems so fictitious. You know, there's like a God and there's demons and there's angels and there's Satan. And I don't know if I buy into all that kind of stuff. And I understand that. It's kind of weird. But let me just say this, that if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're investigating, my guess is there's probably parts of the Bible that you really do like. There's probably things like when Jesus says that we should forgive our, our enemies and love each other. You're like, oh, I really like that. That's a good teaching. Or when Jesus says things like God did not come to judge the world, but he came to save the world. We're like, ooh, that's a, I like that. That's a good verse. And for many of us, there's parts of the Bible that we like. But here's the truth. You can't take some of it without taking all of it. And one of the things that's resoundingly clear in the Bible in many different places is that there is an unseen world that is out there. And there's a battle and a conflict that's happening in that unseen world that has bearing an effect on this world, on present day, here and now. And that's why I say this third thing. Prayer has effects in the inner world, has effects in the outer world, but prayer also has effects in an unseen world. Things that we don't understand that are beyond us. 
Uh, once again, Jesus totally understood this. And I want to show you a passage. You don't have to flip there. I'll put it on the PowerPoint. In Mark chapter 9, um, this is such a strange passage. And Jesus says this one thing. It's, so, it's just a quick statement he says, but it is so bizarre. And this is what's happening. So in Mark chapter 9, uh, I'll just set up for you what the circumstance was. The Bible says that Jesus' disciples were interacting with a man who had a son. And the man's son was believed to be demon-possessed, possessed by a demonic spirit. So this man took his son to the disciples, and he said, can you guys, um, can you guys drive the demon out of my son like Jesus can do? And they're like, sure, I think we can do that. We've been hanging out with Jesus long enough. We could probably do that. So the disciples try to drive this demon out of this, this kid, and the Bible says that they totally failed, just like epic fail. They missed it. And then as a result, there was this big argument that ensued. And so Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, walks into this argument. He's like, what are you guys arguing about? And they're like, well, the disciples tried to heal my son, and he didn't get healed, and I don't know what's going on. And Jesus is like, please. And he heals the son. He drives the demon out of the son, and it's just like game over, right? And then the Bible says that Jesus and his disciples walk away, and they go to a private place, and this is what it says in Mark chapter 9. After Jesus had gone indoors with his disciples, they asked him privately, right? So now they're having this little after-the-fact post-game conversation. And they said to him, why couldn't we drive the demon out? In other words, what did we do wrong? We've seen you do this before. We did the whole thing. You know, we, we even put our hands up like you do, and we, you know, we did, I don't know, we had the smoke and the lights and the laser show. We did everything you did, and it didn't work. And then Jesus makes this weird, weird statement, and it's just so quick. This is what he says. He goes, oh, yeah. This kind can only come out by prayer. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a prayer demon. We all know that. <laughs> to which the disciples are probably like, that would have been good information for us to know. But, but, but I just want you to see, in this one quick verse, we get a glimpse behind a curtain of a reality that's taking place that we don't understand. The Bible, the Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 6. It says that our battle, our struggle, the thing you're going through right now, is not flesh and blood, but it is a battle that's happening in the spiritual realms where there are authorities and principalities in the heavenly realms. That's weird. That's weird. But the Bible makes no apology about this, that there is an organized, hierarchical spiritual reality that is out there with real personalities and a real war, and it has not only an effect on us, but a greater effect on us than even the flesh and blood, the empirical things that we face today. That is to say, your marriage problems, your relationship problems, your addiction problems, at their root, at their root, are spiritual problems. That's what the Bible teaches us. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if you want to know how prayer affects things, it doesn't just affect the inner world, it doesn't just affect the outer world, it affects the unseen world. It has the, it has the power to change things. There's a passage where Jesus looks at Peter. After Peter, uh, he knows that Peter's going to deny him. And he looks at him and he says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, man. He's got, he's got your number, Peter. And he's like, but good news, I prayed for you. I prayed for you. And, and what's he talking about? He's talking about some spiritual effect that we don't understand, but it changes things in the unseen. Well, let me give you one more passage on this. This one's really weird, too. Sorry for all the weird stuff. This is crazy. Daniel chapter 10. This is so bizarre. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel hears that there's going to be a major war, and it breaks his heart. And so he goes to God in prayer. Look at this. Okay, Daniel 10. 
At that time, I, Daniel, this is Daniel, I mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat, no wine, touched my lips. I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So what we find out is that in this three-week span, Daniel fasted and prayed. He fasted and cried out to God. He said, my heart is broken. I pray that you would change. I pray that you would intervene in some way. And then look at this. The Bible says that an angel, after, after three weeks, an angel comes to Daniel, which is weird. And Daniel's first response when he sees the angel is what ours would be. He freaks out. Right? He, he falls to the ground. He's like, ah! I don't know what he, if he did that, but that's what I would have done. And, and then verse 12, he continued, do not, the angel says to Daniel, don't be afraid, Daniel. Why did he say that? Because Daniel was scared, right? Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Your prayer's been heard, Daniel. That's what he says. And I've come in response to him. Now, look at this next part. This is one of those verses in the Bible that you're like, what the? This is one of them. Here it is, verse 13. <laughs> but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. Remember, Daniel's been praying for how long? Three weeks, which is what? 21 days. He's like, I've been resisted for 21 days. But after 21 days, then Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the angels, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time to come. What is going on? Well, here's what's going on. Daniel prays for three weeks. After three weeks, the angel comes and says, man, I would have got here earlier. I was caught up. And it was, it was after three weeks of you praying, finally Michael came, and he loosed me, and I was able to come to you. And you're like, huh? And it's like, yeah. This is, again, one of those verses where you just peel the curtain back a little bit and we get a little taste that there's something that's happening in the unseen world that we don't understand. See, I think the reason that Jesus depended so deeply on prayer, the reason that he did in a way that maybe we don't, is because he understood the full effects that prayer has. Prayer changes the inner, in the inner world. It changes me, yeah. But more than that, it also changes the outer world. It changes things. It changes history. Oh, but even more than that, even more than we can understand, prayer changes things in a spiritual world, in an unseen world that we don't understand. And there's major effects that that has. That's why the Bible in the book of Ephesians tells us, in, in light of spiritual warfare, in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, pray on all occasions and all circumstances for everybody. Pray, 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 pray. So Paul says. Why? Because it changes things. In me, in the world, and in unseen places that we don't even understand. So we need to pray and never give up and pray and pray and pray and pray. And this is why we see Jesus depending on prayer so much. Jesus, before he picked his disciples, he spent all night in prayer, all night praying. Uh, before he healed Lazarus, before he did most of his miracles, Jesus prays. Before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays. He prays and he prays. While he's on the cross, he prays and he prays. Why? Because he understood something we don't understand. The effects are far more outreaching then we know. All of this, all of this, and I'll have to close up because I'm probably going too long here. I see Seth staring at me back there. Um, all of this has caused me to look at prayer in a different way. And let me explain to you uh, part of what I've been challenged with recently, and I want to challenge you with too. I've been starting to identify that prayer is probably the most powerful weapon that God has ever given us. For those of us who follow Christ, prayer is the most powerful thing. Um, that we have to affect causality in this world. God has given it to us. And because it's a weapon, it's intended to be used that way. And here's what I've found. I have found that there are really two types of prayer. 
Okay, I call it prayer 1.0 and prayer 2.0. And that might sound silly to you, but let me explain what I mean. Hopefully this is, I can make this clear to you. Prayer 1.0, in my, in my mind, is defensive prayer. Okay, it is reactionary prayer. And I believe that this is the type of prayer that most of us engage in, myself included. All right, It's like this. Everything's going fine. Marriage is fine. Relationships are fine. Work is fine. Housing situation is fine. Financial situation is fine. I'm not praying. Everything's good. Fine. But then I lose my job, or there's a financial crisis, or the marriage, all of a sudden there's tension. Now I'm praying. Right? My kids malfunction. Now I'm praying. And, and I believe that we should pray in all things. That's a great thing to do. I'm not saying don't pray in those circumstances. We ought to. We ought to pray. Man, we ought to pray in those circumstances. But that is reactionary, defensive prayer. We are using the weapon of prayer in a defensive way. I believe that there's another type of prayer and even a better type of prayer. I call it 2.0. And prayer 2.0 is this. It is an offensive prayer. It is a, this is preventative. I mean, this is, this is reactionary. This is preventative. This is like, God, help me. My marriage is going to fail. This is like, God, my marriage is going awesome. Please help me to continue to grow and strengthen in my marriage. This is, God, my kids are, are a wreck and they're rebelling against me. And this is like, God, my, my, I praise you. My kids are fine. I pray for them every day, every day that something would change in them, that God, that you would work in their hearts. This is 1.0 and 2.0. And I believe, I believe that what God calls us to, what Jesus exemplifies for us, is a 2.0 type of prayer. It's not just a reactionary defensive prayer, which is good, but it is an offensive attack strategy. And I think that that's the type of prayer we're called to. So, so in closing, I'm going to ask the band to come up. And in closing, let me close by just asking you one question and then giving you one challenge. And then we're finished. All right? I promise. So here's my one question for you. I just want you to imagine with me for a minute what would it look like in your life if you were engaged in 2.0 prayer? What would, it, what would that look like? What would it look like if you believed in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships, in your job, in your financial situation, in your life? What would it look like if you believed that prayer could not only affect the inner world, but also the outer world, and even the unseen world. What could that look like? Imagine. Imagine what it would look like if you believed in prayer in the way that we see Jesus. What would that look like in your life? I just want you to imagine that. And if you can imagine that in your mind, I believe that that's exactly what God intends for us in prayer because prayer changes things. It changes me, it changes outward things, and it changes things in the unseen world. I just want you to chew on that a little bit and pray about that. Get a vision for that, what God could do. What would it look like in our church if we prayed this way. You know, I was, uh, one of the stories that was so remarkable to me was about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, some of you might know, was a preacher in the, 18th, the, late, the late 1800s, and he, um, the, the ministries of Charles Spurgeon and his church still have unbelievable effects this day. The man was used mightily by God, just mightily. And I'll never forget a story. There was, um, there was five college students that went to go visit Charles Spurgeon's church. And when they went there, they were like, man, what is, what is going on? How are you guys doing this? You're reaching thousands of people through your ministries. Um, literally thousands of people are coming to hear the word of God being preached. What is going on here? And I'll never forget this story because one of the members of the church took these five college students down to a room that was underneath the sanctuary of the church where the sermon was being preached. And there in that lower room under the sanctuary was literally hundreds of people praying 
praying that God would change people's hearts and lives to the ministries of that church. And I love it because Charles Spurgeon said this. Charles Spurgeon called that room the boiler room. He said, that's where the energy comes from. That's where the steam comes from to change things in a very real way. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, prayer meetings are the throbbing machinery of the church. It's like, wow, that's 2.0, man. That's 2.0. So, so here's my challenge to everyone in this room. As I, you know, it would be so um, ironic if we spent the last four weeks talking about prayer and never gave an opportunity to do it. So Steve mentioned earlier, this week, every night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock p.m., we're opening the campus, and we're going to have a time of guided prayer. We're going to pray. We're just going to pray. Because we're like, well, we've been talking about it. Maybe we better get to that. So every night, and I understand you're like, oh, I can't make it this night or that. That's fine, okay? But every night, it's open. And there'll be someone here to help you guide through it, and we're going to pray together. There's going to be child care provided. It's going to be awesome. Um, there's not going to be food, though, so just keep that in mind. Um, but we're going to pray. We're just going to pray and, uh, and take some time to engage in prayer in that way. And I would encourage you to come out as we engage together in 2.0 prayer. All right? Let me pray for us, and then we'll be finished. Jesus, your, uh, your word is so good to us today. I thank you that you have exemplified for us a pattern of prayer. You showed us in the way you lived. You exemplified a dependence on prayer that is foreign to us. We don't do that very often. But God, I believe that the reason that your prayer life was so different than ours is because you believe things about prayer that we don't necessarily adhere to. Um, I think a lot of us wonder what difference prayer makes, but Jesus, it's clear to me um, that you exemplify that prayer does make a big difference in many different ways and many different avenues. Prayer changes me. It changes the inner world. God, sometimes prayer changes stuff. It changes the outer world. It changes things physically. It changes history. And God, sometimes, oftentimes, prayer changes things in an unseen world. God, we don't understand that. It's beyond our comprehension level. But it's because of that that I pray that we pray even more fervently, just trusting that because you've commanded us to do this, that obviously it is a tool used to accomplish your will on this earth. So Father, I pray that you'd make us 2.0 prayer people. I pray we wouldn't just be reactionary and defensive. I pray we'd be offensive and precautionary. God, help us just to pray in these ways. And I ask these things in Christ's name.